Well, good morning. Dave, you got my seat there, big boy? My seat there. Thank you. Oh, Mike, okay. Took all I had to get this table here. Yes, that's right. I'm very much. Back in my, my goodness, this seat looks like it's kind of like, okay. I think I'm missing my other seat, but does this look weird? I think I'm going to just kind of keep this over here for now, but um, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's, well, it's great to be back, and I'm, I want to thank you for letting me, letting me go and uh, the time that I got to spend uh, the elder team, when they, were, when they came and said, hey, listen, we think you need to take a longer sabbatical than we have typically taken. And what we do, if you're new here, we, every seven years, um, our directors get to take a, what was a five-week sabbatical. And they, uh, they kind of said, you know, we think you need more than that. Um, just COVID and uh, building a building and just a lot of things that went into that. And so they said 12 weeks. And I negotiated it down to 10 because I just couldn't imagine being gone that long. And, 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 and in an instance, and I, this is why we, have, why we have such a good elder team, I think they kind of wanted me to reflect on that and, and really kind of ask the question, do I really think I'm that important? And it, it was a good question for me to think about. It really was. And so uh, I've just heard wonderful things, and, and there'll be a moment in this service that I will want to be very intentional about that. But I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little nervous. I've never been out of the saddle this long. Uh, as an avid mountain biker, if, uh, if, you've, if you've ridden bikes a lot, you know you develop some saddle toughness. And when you get off that bike for a while and you sit back on it, that first ride, it hurts. You don't want to get back on it a second time. But you know you got to do that because you got to develop, kind of get your saddle strength about you. And so that's a little bit about what's going on here. But uh, I, I thank you for the the, uh, the, the kind words, I thank you for the very generous uh, gifts that, that came and, and just words of encouragement just were amazing. And, and I'm really very, very thankful for that. What's really kind of funny is uh, you, you can imagine my wife, she, uh, we would laugh about this a little bit, but she would say that people would come and, and they would occasionally ask her, so how, is, uh, how, how are you and Kevin doing on your sabbatical? And she's like, you know, she, she, was, she answered nicely, I believe. I hope she did at least. But she would come back to me, she goes, I don't think people understand that I'm not on sabbatical. I'm working every day. I have to get up and watch you stay home. And so uh, our, our time together is coming. I mean, we certainly had our vacation plan before the sabbatical ever kind of came into fruition. And so she and I will spend some time together for sure. I'm looking forward to that. But it is, it is great to be back. And I'm very, very thankful for that. Uh, we're continuing our study, summer series of the I Am Statements of Jesus. And this morning, I'm excited to share with you yet another one. So let's, uh, let's take a moment, let me pray, and um, we'll jump into it. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful church and how gracious they are and supportive they are of me and my family. And um, Father, our name tags say we love our pastor, but we, we, we love our directors too. And, and I'm just so thankful for them and uh, all that they have meant to me and have meant to this church family, Lord. And I pray as we uh, open up your word, Lord God, we've worshiped and we have sung about you. And Lord, when we say, I need you, when we sing that to you, that's an incredible expression of, of worship and praise. It's acknowledging that we are finite and we don't have all the answers and we have our struggles and we look to you. 
And God, we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look to you in your word. I pray you would speak through me. I have nothing to say, but you have everything to say. And I pray that you would speak to all that are here, all that are tuned in, in a way that would bring glory and honor to you and answers to the questions that we've carried in here, Lord. And ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Well, um, I want to start by asking you, when you hear somebody say to you, and we've all heard it, we've all said it, man, I saw the best movie, or I went to the best restaurant, or we just got back from the best vacation spot. What do you think when you hear that? I mean, what kind of, what, there's, there's, a, there's a particular word jump out at you in any of that? It's a simple three-letter three word, and it's the word the. And the kind of identifies something very specific. And you have to kind of ask yourself, is it really the best restaurant? Was it really the best? How can they know that? Can they really know that and say that? Can I really say that, believing that I know that? And, and we, I mean, the answer is obvious, right? No, we, we, we don't. We, we don't have enough knowledge, enough information to really say that with any authenticity, or, or I should say with any authority. It's an exaggeration. And in this exaggeration, it kind of reveals something that's common to all of us in this room, all of us that are tuned in, every single one of us. And that is that we want the best life and we seek the best life. And it's easy to, be, to, to look for that in a lot of different places. And, and this morning we come in our, in our study to where Jesus makes an incredible statement that I believe is very pertinent and relevant. It's certainly informative to that pursuit that we all have, and that is we want to live the best life that we can. And so we get to that this morning. We're going to explore how that plays out in your life and my life. So to do that, let's all get there together. Let's open our Bible to our table of contents. We're going to kind of explore this statement and its pertinence and its relevance to this idea that we are, are desiring the best life possible. So in your table of contents, you'll see you have a New Testament, you have an Old Testament, I want you to find the book of John in the New Testament. It's the fourth book down. And whatever page it corresponds to, you're going to be at chapter 1. I want you to turn to chapter 14. And I'm going to make one assumption as we move forward. And I hope we can all assume this rather safely. And that is, can we ourselves know what our best life is? And I would, again, I would argue for the same reason we don't know that that was the best restaurant or the best vacation, because we just don't have all the information. We don't know all things. So can we really know what the best life is for ourselves? And I would say, no, we can't. But can we all assume just for this morning that Jesus is probably the best person we could put forward? That if he says something is the best, might we consider that as really truly being an authoritative statement? One that we could live our lives by and actually experience and, 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 and find what we seem to be looking for in many different places. And so I'm just going to ask you to go with me on that statement if we could do that. And, and the statement that we're going to read, it, it's not only powerful because Jesus said it, but it's powerful because it has a three-letter word in it that makes the statement very unique. And I'll exp we'll explore that a little bit more as we go. But let's turn to John chapter 14. Let me set up the context where we are in this 
Jesus has begun, believe it or not, he has begun to talk to his apostles and his disciples about his departing. He says, I'm going to leave you. And you can imagine, these are people who threw their lives into following him and giving up many things, if not all things. And, and he tells them, I'm going to be leaving. And that begins to trouble them. Uh, Jesus was never afraid of trouble. And so he kind of tacks onto it. And he tells Peter, Peter, who's the leader of the apostles, the, the other disciples, and Paul, they would look to Peter. He was kind of the pace setter for them. And, and Jesus said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You, you can imagine how alarming that would be to Peter, but also those who were, who were you know, in awe and in respect of Peter. And so this conversation, these statements have brought a troubling effect to his apostles. And we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 14, where we see Jesus is trying to console them. And he says in verse 1, he says, Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. He's been, he's been kind of talking about where he's going. And Thomas, like Peter before him, who asked the same question, but Thomas asks us a little bit differently. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Good old doubting Thomas. Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, so, so to kind of calm the, 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 the anxiety and the concerns for, for some hard things that Jesus has said, he says this powerful statement. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And my friends, that is a powerful statement that should inform in all of our lives this idea that we have, this pursuit that we have of looking for the best life possible. And I want to break it down. We're going to break it down and, and, and understand how that impacts our common pursuit. Let's start with the first thing he says. He says, I am the way. He's talking about the, the, the distance between one point and another. And, and in, this, in this way, he, he, he has to prepare it before he can be it. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And, and in this, you, you, hopefully you were listening as I was reading. Jesus is certainly alluding to, he's referring to heaven and, and being in the presence of God. He's also talking about something even grander than that. And that is when Jesus returns and there's a new earth and, we're, and God is once again present. What we have to understand is you go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. That was the prototype of what was to come, of what God wanted to come. And that was that God would dwell with his people and there would be perfection. Well, that got all messed up. But God wasn't dissuaded. He didn't give up. He just goes now to plan B. And there, there is this, in Scripture, there is the hope. I would say there is the certainty that God is going to come back again. He's going to dwell with his people like he did in Eden. But it's going to be worldwide. It's going to be an amazing thing. The, the writer of, of what Paul says in Corinthians, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor mind can conceive what God has prepared for them. So we have to use our imagination that God has given us. But in this way, he first has to prepare a way. He has to go. He's not going to go to heaven and with two by fours and hammer nails and start constructing the dwelling places that he speaks of here. This is all metaphorically spoken. 
But you know what? Where he is going to prepare a place, it involves wood and it involves nails. Uh, earlier in chapter 8 and 13, I believe, he tells the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was talking about the cross. And he was going to go to the cross and he was going to bear the sin of all of humanity. He was going to absorb the judgment of God for all of the sin of all of humanity. And in his perfect life, he did not deserve to be there, but he sacrificially chose to go for your sin, your brokenness, and mine. And we all bring it in here. And we, we spend a lot of our lives trying to cover it up, trying to manage it, trying to justify it, trying to keep it quiet. And Jesus absorbed the judgment of God, a holy, perfect God, for all of that. And that's what he was going to prepare a place. Was for, that had to happen so that forgiveness could be real and could be personalized if we put our faith and trust in Jesus' work and not our own. And at that moment, we have a place with God the Father because Jesus makes the way. The thing we have to recognize is Jesus doesn't say, hey, let me point you to the way. L let me teach a way. Let me model a way. No, he says, I am the way. Again, the powerful three-letter word of the. As to say there is no other way, I am the way. So Jesus is the way to this close, personal relationship with God, a holy God, the holy God. And that's what he's talking about. He, he, that, that's what heaven is. Heaven is being in the presence of God again. But because Adam and Eve, who were our predecessors, who kind of were, they were the ones who went before us and they represented us, man, it was a crash and burn kind of moment. And God kicked them out of the garden. And, 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 and the relationship was broken. And like I said, God wants to bring back that. And to do that, our sins have to be forgiven. And that's what Jesus did. He went to prepare a place so that could happen, so that we could be once again present with, with God. Now, the idea of having a close personal relationship with God probably, for some of you, is problematic. How do I do that? God, I, I don't see God. I, I don't wake up and, and say hello to God. I don't go to work and there he is. That's why we have Jesus. Jesus said, when you see the Father, you see me. I and the Father are one. And so when we try to think about what it's like to have a close personal relationship with the holy God, we think of Jesus. And Jesus personifies God. Remember, God can get really deep here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is spirit. Jesus comes as God on this earth in flesh and bone. And he lives his life. Think of how Jesus reacts and how he interacts with people. Remember the woman at the well, right? The woman at the well who, who, who had five husbands. And, and, and Jesus comforts her. And says, I've got a better life for you. He doesn't rail on her for her five husbands. He doesn't come at her pointing out the sin of her life. He comes at her with, you have a need and I want to meet it. Uh, think of Peter who denied him three times. And Peter, sure enough, denies him three times. He restores Peter. Our, we're seeing in Jesus God. And so when we try to think about relating to God, we think about who Jesus is. If we want to know what it's like to be in relationship with God, we look to Jesus. And my friends, we have four books and, and, and more that account for who the person of Jesus is. So the way to know God intimately is to know Jesus. Now let me ask the, the, the Christians in the room for a minute. Does Jesus' work 
on the cross, does that still take your breath away? When you think about your sin, and again, we, we sometimes just don't want to think about it. We try to hide it. We try to cover it up. But when you think about that Jesus absorbed the judgment of God for your sin and for my sin, does that still take your breath away, that God loves you like that, that Jesus loves you like that? I, I thought a lot about this while I was gone. Because amazingly, in pastoring, it, it, it's not hard to get all caught up in the doing and not reflecting and being mindful and having my breath taken away again over that kind of love. D does Jesus making a way like he made a way, does it humble you? D do you think about, wow, he did that for me? Does it recenter your life on what really is important? We're, we're, there's so many distractions out there, but do we spend time thinking about Jesus as the way? Does, does it recenter our lives? Does it make you desire to repent? You see, it's, it's one thing to acknowledge the sin in our lives. I mean, I acknowledge I have sin in my life. I spent 10 weeks thinking about some of it. But God doesn't just want me to think about it. He doesn't just want me to agree that it's wrong and that it hurts him. He wants me to repent. He wants me to turn and walk. And, and I'll tell you right now, there are some hard things in this book. I'll be frank with you. There are some things in this book, I don't like them. And if left to me, I would say, let's just get that out. But that's not the way. That's not how life works. And so we repent. We, we, we say, God, I'm sorry. And, and we begin to move and work in a way that we undo. We, we, we um, hang out with other people. We walk in a different direction. But Jesus says, I am the way. And life works when we are forgiven by God and in, our, in a relationship, a personal, close relationship with God. But he says, not only that he is the way, he says, I'm the truth. Now, out of curiosity, by a show of hands, come on, let's just be honest here. Let's play along with this, okay? How many of you like to play games? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, when I say games, most of you are probably thinking board games, maybe. Or maybe, um, I, can I include, football's a game. Can I put football in there? Okay. Football's a game. Okay. Pickleball. Pickleball's a game. All right. So, imagine if you were playing a game and no one followed the rules. Imagine pickleball, no one follows the rules. You have weapons in your hands. If you don't play the game by the rules, it's not fun. It's chaotic. Imagine if, if no one followed the laws and the rules on the roadways. That'd be crazy. It would not be a lot of fun. And it would be chaotic. Let me give you a funny little example of, of, a, of, a, of a law or a rule that was kind of, that I thought everyone knew, but apparently not in Africa. So when the plane landed, I was with Chris Bernard. We were going um, to Shire, which is, it's a small town, okay? And so we landed on a dirt runway, and a 12-year-old pilot came out of the pilot's play, uh, cockpit. <laughs> I mean, I just looked at him and went, that's who was flying us here? So normally, correct me if I'm wrong, when a plane lands, 
and you're taxiing and you get to the gate, you get off in an orderly row-by-row -row fashion. It's, it's expected that people in front of you will go before you. It's expected the people behind you will wait till you go. My friends, it was a mad rush for the aisle. I mean, just people just come, and I'm watching this happen. I'm like, going, they're breaking rules here. This is not how it's supposed to go down. And Chris has to explain to me, you're in Africa. This is how it goes down. But it just felt wrong. It, and, and it was chaos. And, and Chris may not like me telling you this story, but he saw the, the terror in my face. And so Chris, in his own Bernard way, starts yelling at people to stop, you know, get out of the way, let us get out. I'm thinking, international incident, here it comes. <laughs> so the idea is if, if there's rules and laws that make games fun and that we can actually drive on the roadway safely, then shouldn't we really, doesn't make sense to expect that in life? Shouldn't we understand that there are some rules and some laws in life that make life work? And, and that is exactly what Jesus is referring to here when he says that he is the truth. He's referring to truth, that, that there is a way to live life that works. But he goes one step further. He says, it's not these set of rules that are out here. He says, I'm the truth. I personify the truth. Everything I say is true. How I live is true. What I command of you is true. What I do is true. And if we want our best life, Jesus has made a way to be forgiven by God so that we can be who we were always created to be. But how do we live the life that we've been given? We live it by truth. And, and, and to, to seek truth, to pursue truth, which we're commanded to do, is to seek Jesus because Jesus says, I'm truth. And so as you pursue Jesus, you're pursuing truth. Let me, let me bring this, my, my sabbatical in to this. Um, I, I went into my sabbatical with some angst. I, I was struggling with some things. And I, and I would take them to God and I would pray. And I would say, God, please bring clarity. Help me. And he brought to mind some passages of Scripture that I, I had known for a long time, and, and, and they were very uh, important to me. Actually, when Nancy and I were making a decision for me to leave Texas and to come and start a church, and all the fears and anxieties that go with that, and God, what, are you, you know, do you want us to do it or not? You know, just that whole thing. And he said, as I was bringing these, these, these concerns and, and angst to me, here, here's a few of the verses that, that came to mind. Proverbs chapter 2. Verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to, let's look it up here on the screen. Do we have Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 back there? If not, I can read it, but I, there we go. This is, listen to what it says. It says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within, you listen closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice and understand, and here's verse 4. If you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And I felt like the Spirit of God was saying to me, Kevin, you're, you're asking, but are you really seeking it relentlessly? And, and I have to ask you the same thing. Are you relentlessly pursuing Jesus? If, if, if the struggles you're having or the trials you're going through or the wisdom you're seeking 
and the knowledge you want, and, and you offer up a prayer to God. You're, you're, you know, and, but if you're not relentlessly pursuing it like it's a treasure, and I had to tell God, no, I, I really haven't been doing that. As a matter of fact, there's, there's probably a thing or two else that I've been seeking even more than that. And, and, you know, of course, God's like, well, then how serious are you about this? How about Jeremiah 29, 13? Can we pop this one up there? You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There's Matthew 6.33. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then you'll, you'll find these other things. And there's many places in there, and I was convicted. I was like, God, I, I, I know I'm asking, but you're really wondering if I'm serious about it. And, and the way you're wondering if I'm serious about it is you're getting me to reflect on Am I really relentlessly pursuing truth and Jesus? Because if I'm really doing that, then there are these incredible promises that I will find what I'm looking for. And I will tell you that towards the end of my sabbatical, praise God, there was some, some of that angst God cleared up. I'm still working on it, but his promises are true and they're good. Now, let me just say one parenthetical thing about truth here for a moment. I was sharing this with, with some friends over the time that I just, this was just something God was convicting me with. And, and, um, and there's, there's people like the ones, some of the people I was talking to, there are people in here. And truth is very important to you, as it should be. What I find and what I've seen is there are a lot of people who recognize lies very, very well, but are a complete train wreck when they try to, push back against people who are saying things that are not true. In other words, you can be right and say it in the wrong way and you lose the discussion. I mean, look at how Jesus spoke truth. Again, let's go back to the woman at the well. He did not lead with her sin. He knew it. He led with what her need was. And he says, I want to meet it. You draw water to satisfy your physical thirst. He goes, but if you knew who was in front of you, you'd ask for living water. I mean, he, he didn't lead with a club, with the truth. And, and what I find is when people, that, particularly those who are, who are passionate about truth, is they take sides. And, and they, they build up and strengthen their argument. There's no bridge building. There's just lobbing bombs of truth. And you, you've got to understand, I have to understand, that we can be right in what we say, but if we're wrong in how we say it, we lose. If we don't do it like Jesus did it, with grace and mercy, and realizing that the person, if they really believe what they believe, if they really believe that, and we know that it, it, it goes against the Scripture, if we don't come to them out of concern and hurt for them and how their life's going to turn out rather than our being right, we lose in the discussion. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth. Lastly, he says, I am the life. Now, if you have your Bibles open, turn to John chapter 10 for a moment. Let's just, let's get a little background here on this idea of life. It's, a, it's again, a small word, but man, it's powerful. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, a thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. He goes, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. It's powerful. Jesus is saying, I have come 
that those who would follow me would experience life abundantly. Now, what is, what is he, does he elaborate on that? We'll turn to John chapter 17. Let's go the other way. John chapter 17, verse 3. What is this, um, this idea of, of abundance? Chapter th- or verse 3 of chapter 17 kind of gives us a little bit of an understanding. He says, this is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So, so Jesus speaks of this abundant life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what he's saying is, is that he is and has made a way and has given us truth to understand that in him we find what everybody else is looking for in people, places, and things. They're looking in all different places. I've looked in different places at times. You've looked at different places at times. And we're looking to satisfy that long yearning we have inside, and that is to find the best life. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is where we go and look and what we rely on. And so Jesus speaks of this incredibly abundant life that is in a relationship with him. You see, it's not in, and the the abundance that he speaks of, it's not about riches and fame and status and power and comfort and even, my friends, physical life. You know what we've done and what I have done is we have Americanized abundance. We've taken abundance and, and, and taken it out of its biblical context, and we have Americanized it to where we think it is about stuff and status and power and fame. And that's not it at all. Jesus is saying that abundance comes in relationship with Jesus, an eternal life that begins the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. And Jesus is coming back, and we will live on a new earth which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, no mind can conceive what that's even like. Is that even close to your orientation right now? When you came here, and, and, and yesterday, whatever you're doing, when you're thinking about wanting the best life possible, by any chance were you thinking about another vacation, another purchase, another award? Did the thought of pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is where you'll find everything you're looking for. It's where I'll find everything that I'm looking for when we look in other places. But the problem is, and I'll be honest with you, this is another verse that, that, that God used as a two-by-four in my head. That abundant life is, is challenging. That, that, is, that is a difficult... I, I would... I mean, if we pulled everyone in here, I, I imagine we'd have a good number of people who said, I'm not experiencing that. I'm just not. I'm dealing with guilt and shame. I'm dealing with discontent. I'm dealing with anger, disappointment, fear, purposelessness. I have no idea why I'm here. And, and Jesus has this powerful statement He says, I'm the life. Me, pursue me, relentlessly pursue me. And I was reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is where we go go off the tracks. This is where we go off the rails. It's very simple. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. 
And he's been coming with teaching God's word. And, and, and they're finding some of that to be really challenging and problematic. It's kind of cramping their style. It's kind of, you know, they're, they're not, it's denting living their best life. And listen to what he says in verse 12. This about kicked my butt when I read it. And I just, I mean, I've been thinking about this for 10 weeks. He says, you're not limited by us, but you're limited by your own affections. Okay, mic drop. Boop. All right. Because what I had to do is I had to say, okay, God, what are my affections? If I'm really honest, what are the things I'm desiring? What do I want? I'm not going to share that list with you. You have your own list. But my affections were, they were out of order. And life will not work when your affections are out of order. If we're not relentlessly pursuing that relationship with Jesus, which is the life, we're going to miss it. So Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. And, and let me just ask you, are you experiencing the life that Jesus speaks of? Because if you're not, and you know me, I like to make up words. Godfidence, remember that? Here's another one. If you're not experiencing the life that Jesus says is there, then my friends, you have and I have Corinthianitis. No charge for that? Okay. Don't anyone go out and start making t-shirts because I'm going to trademark that, all right? <clears throat> but if our affections are out of order, if you love your husband more than you love Jesus, if you love your children more than you love Jesus, if you love your job more than you love Jesus, if you love your vacation spot more than you love Jesus, if you love yourself more than you love Jesus, my friends, that is full-blown Corinthianitis. And the life that you're seeking, you'll miss it. And I'll miss it. Now I want to say two last things and then I'm going to move on and we'll be done. Just this, this is this teaching. Let's, let me go back to John chapter 14 here. Jesus, that, the power of that three-letter word, the. When he says, I'm the. No one else is. I am. <clears throat> and then when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is going to sound a little shocking, but I think it's important. Jesus shows immense amount of humility, but zero modesty. Those statements, I am, no one comes but through me. My friends, there's no modesty in that. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. And Jesus is not giving anyone the option to like him. I heard it this way. You either crown him or you kill him. Jesus gave no middle ground. He spoke in extreme ways, in absolute ways. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't give anybody else that. He didn't give any other options. He says, no one comes to the Father. My friends, that is not a modest statement. That is a statement from the mouth of God. And so if you think that you can kind of like Jesus and you're okay, he, he does not give you that option. He takes that option away. And, and, and with that comes this idea, and, and this is where people 
that are outside the church, they see Christianity, and when they, particularly this statement, they see Christianity as being very exclusive. And it's problematic for them. And if you were to ask them, most of them would probably say that, wait a minute, I, I believe that anyone who's a good person should be right with God. You, you know, a good Muslim, a good Buddhist, a good Hindu, if they're good people, good people should go to heaven. Good people should be with God. And that's their response when Christians say, well, this is what Jesus said. He says, he is the only way. And they say, well, how exclusive is that? It is exclusive. I would argue, though, that Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Because to the person who says, I think good people should, should be in the presence of God. Well, what about the bad people? You, you see, sir, your statement is, is rather exclusive as well. What, what about the bad people? You see, Christianity has a reason for the bad, or has, has a, a way for the bad people. Christianity simply says, all of you, Good people, bad people, all of you, when you realize that you have sinned and you're broken and you need a Savior, come. It's open to all. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. My friends, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. And so this statement, don't let it scare you off. And then the last thing, just a general statement, Put yourself back in the disciples and the apostles' shoes. They're following Jesus. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And, in, and a few hours later, Jesus, as the one who said and declared and proclaimed that he was the way, is about to be hung on a cross and die in the most humiliating of ways. The one who said that I am the truth is about to seemingly be defeated by evil liars who get him crucified. And when he says, I am the life, within hours his body is about to be put into a tomb. Just put yourself there as, your, as a disciple, as an apostle, and try to reconcile that. What do you do with that? My friends, that's where faith is so important. What we need to recognize is the power of thee, the way, the truth, and the life, is activated by faith, not mere belief. And thank you, disciples, thank you, apostles, that your faith remains strong. And because of their faith, even though the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, was crucified and buried in a tomb, my friends, what we have and what Christianity has and, and really what, what the absolute truth has on its side, because people will argue that there's Moral relativism, you have your truth, I have my truth, you have your identity, I have my identity. My friends, what absolute truth has on its side is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is what puts a stamp on the power and authenticity of his statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And thank you that the faithful men and women believe that. And saw on the other side of that the resurrection. And somehow, someway, because of their faith, the, the gospel made its way here. Right here. And I thank God for that. So let me close with this 
All I'm going to ask you to do is to reflect on these three questions. And that is, I want you to evaluate, do you have a close personal relationship with God? Or is that just so abstract and so difficult that you kind of given up? Because Jesus is someone that you, you can know God in an intimate way through Jesus, and we have it right here. Secondly is, are you relentlessly pursuing Jesus in truth? This is the one that I, I just share that with you because this is the one that has wrecked me in times. And then lastly, are you experiencing a biblically abundant life? Not an Americanized version, but a biblically abundant life where, there's, where, where, where you have been released from being held hostage by guilt and shame and purposelessness and fear and all those things. Because this is God's word, and it's backed by a resurrection. Okay, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming and living a perfect life in our place, and then in a way we cannot comprehend that you died for us, and you absorbed the judgment and God's wrath for my sin and the sin of all humanity. And Holy Spirit, thank you for drawing us to the beauty of that event. I pray, Lord God, now as we continue to worship that we'll honor you. We'll make decisions in our hearts that will lead to action from our hands and our feet that will bring glory to you in Jesus' name.